Now last night, there's a place here on the, um, on the, on the platform that bounces up and down and so I jump up and down when I speak and so it's like a trampoline and the poor sound guys, anyway they have now marked a cross with, with masking tape right here where I am to stand. So that's the first thing I've been told. Second thing I've been told is slow down a little bit. I speak a little bit too quickly. I have a very slight Australian accent and so sometimes it can be just a little hard to uh, understand me. If I'm speaking too quickly, just put your hand up and tell me, all right? So I'll slow down just a little. How about we pray that God might help us to understand his word. Lord God, we ask now that you would open our hearts and minds to understand your word. Please, through your spirit, give us this understanding. And we ask these great things in Jesus' name. Amen. When you get to a certain age, your body starts to do strange things. Strange things like the hair falls out of your head and starts growing in really weird places. Now, it may only happen for some of you, but it's like it doesn't grow on the top of your head anymore, but it grows out your ears or on the back of your neck or other places that you really don't want to hear about. Uh, there's other things like... I think it's kind of a cruel irony in life that you get to a certain age, or anyway, I got to the age where I needed glasses, and at the same time I started forgetting where I'd put them. So I've worked out now that I have seven pairs of glasses for reading and different things, and I have them in strategic places, in the car, beside my bed. That's, that's how I cope with uh, forgetting where I put things. And over time as well, as you get older, your skin starts to be, like, not be stretchy anymore and it gets kind of saggy and on the elbows and so on. And Bob Hope, the American comedian, said, if you live long enough, you get to the point where even your birthday suit needs ironing. <laughs> and you notice someone's hands begin to look old, particularly with Anglo men in Australia. What you notice is... Um, uh, big men who are old or men have, have hands that are too big for their bodies. And the reason is that they've been big men with big hands and as you get older your hands don't shrink but the rest of your body kind of does. <laughs> I'm standing as still as I can. Okay. And so really you get to the point where your body starts to fall apart. But what I've worked out is it's a sad thing you never get to complain to anybody who wants to listen. Because if you're starting to hurt at getting older and things are going wrong, if you try and talk to someone who is younger, you just try it and within two sentences the screensaver has gone on in their head or they've left the room. They don't want to listen, they don't understand. And then you can't talk to your peers about it because they're going through the same kind of problems and aches and pains and so on, so your peers don't want to talk. And then you try and talk to someone older, and what's the first thing they say? Oh, you think you've got problems, let me tell you what I... And so you never get to complain about growing old, and I guess what I'm saying is a long-winded way of saying 
you get to a certain age and your body begins to tell you you know within yourself that you're dying we know that we will die I hit 50 the other day and my body tells me every day that I'm dying and we joke about it and make light of it why because it's it's scary and we live in societies that will not talk about it and that run away from it as much as possible the Bible tells us that death is what gives Satan his power death is the great lever the great weapon that Satan holds or the great power that Satan holds over us because we sin and sin is the wages of death and death inevitably means or death is separation from God and that means ultimately being with the devil death is his great victory if you like now what I've said again and again is that there's no dualism in the Bible and by dualism I mean two equal forces the dark and the light the good and the bad wrestling against one another there's none of that God is completely in charge completely by the way there's people who've asked some questions at the uh, the question box down here two good questions which I'll try and answer tomorrow morning so if you've got other questions you can write them and I'll do my best uh, there's no dualism in the Bible and yet if I could say God is completely in control God is completely sovereign but if I could say speaking with all reverence God has a problem God has a great difficulty something that is very difficult and that is this God by his character must bring justice and destroy evil and he will destroy the devil completely it will be done but God's problem is this how do you bring justice destroy evil destroy the evil one and save us because we are part of the problem as well we are evil we do wrong things we rebel against God and so as God comes to bring justice and destroy evil how does he do that without destroying us and God has known of this problem if I could call it that this dilemma since before he created the world and God has known God has decided from before the creation of the world that it would cost him his only son to save us how do I know that well here it is in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18 listen to what the Apostle Peter tells us as he writes to the Christians he says for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect he was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake God knew that he would have to send his only son to die to redeem us before he created us and yet he still made us now in the Bible death uh, and the devil are linked I'm about to talk about how does God rescue us from death uh, and judgment um, in the Bible death and the devil are linked uh, the Lord Jesus let me show you in John chapter 8 verse 44 very important verse the Lord Jesus links 
death and the devil and lies and the beginning. I'll read it for you. As Jesus is arguing with his opponents, he says, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. See, he's, he's the one that bore death. He killed people. Not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, when you think about uh, death, the devil, lies, and the beginning, what is Jesus talking about? I'm sure the Lord Jesus is talking about Genesis chapter 3. So could I get you to just put one finger uh, in, um, hold that in Hebrews chapter 2, and to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, and we'll see what it is that the Lord Jesus, or what Genesis shows us about the devil and death and lies. You see, in, um, as God creates the man and the woman and puts them in the garden, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, we're told, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, verse 17, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. And what is that tree? First of all, notice... It's not having sex, right? As some people think. It's not an apple tree. What is it? It's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, it's not the ability to know that, know that there is such a thing as good and there is such a thing as evil. Um, of course, the man knows that. God is saying, if you eat this, it's evil. He can tell the difference. It's the ability to choose or decide what is good or evil. It's making the rules. It's actually putting yourself into the place of God to decide what will be good and what will be evil, to, to make that decision. Of all of the trees in the garden, that is the only one that God says you cannot eat it. That is the rule that, make, that keeps God being God, if you like. And so we see the serpent arrives in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? What is it? There's the lie, isn't it? It's kind of a quarter of the truth. God had spoken, but there's the lie. He misquotes God, calls God's goodness into question. And the woman's answer, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the, uh, from the, trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Notice the woman has not quoted God properly either. Here comes another lie, verse 4. You will not surely, you will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Uh, see, God is misquoted again. And what the serpent does is to call God's goodness into question. God's holding out on you. God is either mean, he doesn't want what's best for you, or he's stupid, he doesn't know what's best for you. And look at what the woman does, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and, desire, and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. See, what's the, the offer is about pride, isn't it? What's he offer her? Um, you'll be like God. 
And the whole, the heart of sin is to actually doubt God's goodness, to doubt God's word and to lift yourself up in pride. And I assume that you've read the rest of the chapter. You can read it later on. The whole of creation begins to fall apart as the woman and then the man disobey God. And you notice that death enters the world. See down in verse 19, by the, sweet, uh, the, uh, the curse that comes upon Adam, by the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. And so the man and the woman are banished from the presence of God and sent out of the garden. And death enters the world. And what you notice is if you read um, the genealogies, chapter 5 through to chapter 10, they've got the genealogies of these incredibly long lifespans. I'm not exactly sure what to make of them and so on, but Adam lives a you know, very long time and so on and then, and then dies. And what those, those genealogies show is each one, each one of the characters, they live a long time and then they die and then they die and then they die. And each generation away from the garden, the lifespans get shorter and shorter and shorter as death takes hold. And so what are we told in the scriptures? That death comes through sin. The Apostle Paul says that in the book of Romans, Romans 5 verse 12 on the screen. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. So you see, Adam is our, our representative. He is the one that stood there for us. And as Adam sinned, he led us all into sin. Through Adam's sin, we all died. Did Adam die immediately that day? Well, he didn't kind of lie down, get rigor mortis and so on that day, but he died spiritually. He sent from the presence of God. And as sure as night followed day, he died physically. And the Bible warns of two deaths. Of first, a physical death, the death that we, we see people we know and love and so on, and, and people die. And then the second death, the spiritual death, separation from God forever. Now, what was necessary to rescue us? And finally, now we get to Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, it'll be on the screen, or you may like to turn back there to Hebrews chapter 2. What was necessary to rescue us from death? Well, chapter 2 is all about Jesus and what a great saviour he is. Chapter 2, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Let's just have a look at the beginning of that. There's a whole lot packed in there. Beginning of chapter 2, verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Uh, Jesus shared, Chapter 2 is about um, Jesus being made the perfect saviour. Not, not, not in the sense that he ever did anything wrong or whatever, but the perfect saviour in that he's made one of us. And he shares our lives and shares our suffering and understands who we are and lives a life of perfect obedience. And so he shares our humanity, our flesh and blood. The theologian's word for it is the incarnation. And so 28 lifetimes ago, in a little town in the Middle East that you can still visit, God 
became a human being and God was born in a stable and grew up and needed to be toilet trained and learn to walk. Why? So he could be, if you look at the next few verses, in verse 14, so he could be our substitute. In verse 17, so he could be our representative or our mediator or possibly our great high priest is the way I should say it. Our substitute, our great high priest, and verse 18, our sympathiser. Let's go through those. See, it's so that Jesus could represent us in the way that Adam represented us, with completely the, res the reverse um, consequences. See, verse 14, why did he take flesh and blood and become like us? So that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. It's Jesus dies in our place and breaks the devil's power over us, breaks that hold of death. And why is it that people are in slavery for their fear of death? It's worth trying to think about. Why is it that people are in slavery for their fear of death? You think, well, people hardly ever talk about their death. Yeah, that's right. Given that it's, you know, it's pretty certain it's going to happen, why is it that people don't talk about it? Why is it that we try not to think about it? Well, the first reason I've got is fear. We have guilty consciences. I don't know if you've ever studied Hamlet. Uh, here's um, a little poster from the Mel Gibson movie of Hamlet. Uh, Hamlet was a great show. I really enjoyed watching you know, Mel Gibson uh, in Hamlet. I've been waiting for Hamlet 2, but um, no, it hasn't come out. Anyway, in Hamlet is, uh, is that famous speech where he says, to be or not to be, that is the question. And that whole speech is all about whether or not it's worth living or whether he should kill himself. In view of all the difficulties and troubles in life, why is it that people keep on going, keep on living? Let me read you just a little bit of it. He says, um, why do we put up with the troubles of life? He says, to grunt and sweat under weary life. Why? But that the dread of something after death, that undiscovered country from whose born no traveller returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus, conscience does make cowards of us all. People know. People know. I sometimes wonder whether it's my job to make people feel guilty. I just kind of turn up sometimes and people feel guilty. I don't think it's just I don't think it's just like a personality problem. I think it's a fact of who I work for, okay? Um, I mean Jesus, not the Anglican Church. Um, anyway, our consciences are guilty. Now why? Isn't it interesting that the devil holds the power of death? The devil, the word Satan, is actually from the Hebrew word meaning accuser. Satan is the one that accuses. He accuses uh, us before God, humanity before God. That's what you see in the beginning of the book of Job. Satan is there pointing at Job and saying, ha, he's only in it for what you give him. And Satan accuses us and troubles our consciences. 
You see it in Job and you see it in um, Revelation chapter 12 where we saw this morning. Uh, Revelation 12 verse uh, 10 where we see that Satan's called the accuser of the brothers. Now how is it that people show that they're afraid of death? Well I think the first way is distraction. You ever notice, I, I think there's some people who we just, we just keep busy, busy, busy all the time. Um, distraction. I know one man, uh, a man I've known for a while who'd be in his 70s uh, and what does he do? He just watches television all the time. Endless television, just busy, busy, busy all the time and never to actually think about anything important and will not think about God or Jesus or the future or death. Why? He's just too busy watching television. In my country, the average Australian watches... 14 hours a week of television, um, spends many more hours than that on average surfing the net and so on and it's got to be a deliberate distraction hasn't it? We can't really be that dumb as to want to watch television for three hours a day. We can't, can we? Maybe, oh well maybe. So I just think there's distraction, busy, 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 as long as we don't have to think. The other one that people, the other way I think people show fear of death is uh, cramming life with lots and lots of experiences. There's a movie out at the moment called, oh, well, it's been out for a while, actually, it was on the plane as we uh, flew over here, called The Bucket List with uh, Jack Nicholson and Morgan Freeman. And the story is, uh, you know, they're in a, I've seen two minutes of the shorts, they're in a uh, hospital ward together, one of them's going to die or they're both going to die sometime, so they make a list of all the things they want to do before they kick the bucket. And the bucket list is therefore all these wild things like jumping out of an aeroplane and so on that they want to do before they kick the bucket. I don't have a bucket list, I decided I'd start it. It has one item on the bucket list and that is I'm not going to watch that movie. I don't want to waste two hours of my life. That's my bucket list, begins and ends. But you know what, people will think I've got to do this and I've got to travel and I've got to do all of these things. Why? Because it's that feeling of time is running out. In our country we have what's called the grey nomads. And that's people when you hit retirement and you're still in reasonable health, you buy a big four-wheel drive and a big caravan and spend months and months of every year travelling around Australia. Why? Because, well, you have to make the most of cramming every good experience into the time you have left as you get older, don't you? Do you? Do you really? And the other one is kind of ironic. I think people realise that life is so insecure that death is coming and so they look for security in all sorts of things. Security in family or security in success in career or security in success with business or security in money or, or, or whatever it is. And ironically, all those things that give us absolutely no security in the face of death and yet it consumes people. Once you understand that Jesus has conquered death, you need not be afraid of it. I love uh, the way that uh, John describes the words of Jesus in the book of Revelation. John's vision of Jesus when he sees him. Here it is on the screen. Revelation chapter 1 verse 17, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And th this is John who was Jesus' best friend. When he sees Jesus in all his glory, risen from the dead, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. 
I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Believe in him. You need not be afraid. In fact, Jesus can say, if you believe in him, you will never die spiritually. In John chapter 5, he says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and he will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. The change from unbeliever to believer is so significant that the New Testament talks about Christians. Christians don't die, they sleep. Paul writes to the Thessalonians and says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. And the promise is that we will be raised to be like him, a real physical existence in bodies fit for eternity. And what does Hebrews say? Hebrews chapter 2 verse 16, I'll keep working through. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Now by Abraham's descendants, I don't think he means Jewish people of the Hebrews. I think he means those who have the faith of Abraham. And it's not angels he helps. For some reason God has a great love for humanity and gives us a chance that he didn't ever give the angels who fell. Verse 17, for this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Notice Jesus is one of us and so he's able to represent us as a high priest and offer a right sacrifice and the sacrifice of himself. You see the word there at the end of verse 17, atonement, um, it's also going to be translated as propitiation. Big word in English, propitiation or hilaskomai in Greek. Uh, it really means to turn aside anger, to deal with or pay a price to turn aside someone's anger. It's a controversial word in uh, some, uh, inverted commas, Christian circles. There are many Christian teachers and so on who do not like this word and want to redefine it or retranslate it. People do not like the idea of God being angry with sin. And yet the New Testament is very clear about it. And so Jesus offers this one great sacrifice of himself. He dies in our place to defeat death. And he's also able to understand our temptation, our struggles and so on. See verse 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. And so you struggle with temptation, you struggle with difficulties in life, and we'll talk more about that in the next three talks. Jesus understands. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be... You can pray to him. He, he understands. Let me just say a couple of things in conclusion. When you no longer fear death, it sets you free to live the right way. You got that? When you no longer fear death, it sets you free to live the right way. I'll tell you about a very interesting book. It's called The Rise of Christianity by Professor Rodney Stark. 
the first half of it I didn't like too much. The first half of it is quite a lot of kind of sociology and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But the second half of it is really the story of how the early Christians went from just a few thousand people in the middle of the first century to essentially taking over the Roman Empire in the beginning of the third century. How did that happen? Why did they grow like that? What made it such a powerful movement? Now, I don't know whether Professor Stark is a Christian or not. It's, it's hard to tell from the way he writes. I certainly don't think he's kind of a uh, card-carrying evangelical Christian. Um, I, I, I don't think so. I don't know anything about him personally. But he's a, a great writer. And basically what he says is the early Christians outloved, outlived and outdied the pagans. They loved them, they were generous, they, they treated women properly, they didn't abort their babies, they didn't expose babies and baby girls and so on and let them die. They, they were charitable and so on and they were prepared to die and on and on and on it goes. And the Christian faith grew. Right? When you get to the 3rd century or the, uh, the 300s, Constantine, um, the Roman emperor, becomes a Christian or became a Christian, then became the emperor. What Stark says is, it's not that Constantine became a Christian and then made Christianity kind of happen. Christianity was a wave that Constantine got on. The Christians had, had won. And one of the key elements in that, as he says, there were two massive plagues that hit the Roman Empire in um, the year 65 AD and the year 261 AD huge plagues. Let me just read you this little. The great epidemic of the second century, which is sometimes referred to as the plague of Galen. Galen was a Greek physician famous in the Roman Empire. Galen first struck the army of Verus uh, during the campaigns in the east in the year 165 and from there spread across the empire. The mortality was so high in many cities that Marcus Aurelius spoke of caravans of carts and wagons hauling the dead from cities. I am most persuaded by McNeil's estimate that from a quarter to a third of the population perished during this epidemic. A quarter to a third of people died. It kind of puts swine flu in perspective at the moment, doesn't it? All right. Okay. Um, Almost a century later, a second terrible epidemic struck the Roman world. At its height, 5,000 people a day were reported to have died in the city of Rome alone. Now what happened was, many, many more Christians survived than pagans. And after the plagues, many pagans became Christians. Why? Let me read to you what Dionysius, a Christian, writes about what happened when the plagues hit uh, and the difference in the way the Christians faced the plagues compared to the pagans. Dionysius says, Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with a disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbours and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. 
If you stayed and nursed people and simply gave them water and kept them cool, the survival rates were much, much higher. But it meant you had to stay when the plague hit. He says, the best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, deacons and laymen winning high commendation so that their death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. What does Dionysius say about the pagans and how they responded? He says, the heathen behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and the contagion of the fatal disease and do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. At the end of it, many more Christians had survived and many pagans who saw what was done and had been saved by the Christians, converted. And then at the end of pages and pages, Stark tries to analyse what happened and why, and he says in the end, it was because the Christians were unafraid to die that they stayed. They did not fear death. I, uh, I read that... And part of me thought, yes, team, well done, well done. And then I thought, would I have stayed? Would I have stayed? We may not uh, have to die a martyr's death. That could happen. It could happen eventually. We, we probably will not or may not need to die this way in the face of disease. But I want to ask you tonight, have you dealt with the fear of death? Have you thought about that? Have you faced up to that? Have you dealt with the guilt that you feel because Jesus has died for you? Have you dealt with that accusation that your conscience makes? Jesus has died for you, made atonement for you. You do not need to feel guilty anymore because you're not. provided you have come to him or secondly have you given up all the distractions and the trivia don't waste your life with trivia we'll be dead soon there's lots to do okay or thirdly cramming in experiences have you got a bucket list of all of the things that you've got to do before you die and all of the places you've got to go and all of the things you've got to experience throw the bucket list away there's lots more important things that need to be done. And when we get to heaven, air travel will be free. <laughs> Trust me. And we'll all get window seats as well. And everyone will be business class. And, and when we get to heaven, it just won't matter. Well, maybe you're looking for security. Are you looking for security in this world, from your career, or exam results, or in your family, or from money, or success, or the right house, or whatever it is, I want to tell you, I want to remind you, the only real security is found in Jesus. So you look death squarely in the face and understand when you belong to him, you don't need to be afraid. And once you do that, then you can work out how to live. 
then you can work out what's really important. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus into our world, that he became flesh and blood, that he died our death so that we might be forgiven. Now, Father, we pray, please, that you might set us free from the fear of death so that we might know how to live. And we ask that we might be able to see what is truly important in the light of eternity. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.